Good morning, everybody. I'm glad to be sharing the Word of God today. Uh, this morning, we're going to take a brief, just one-week hiatus from the book of Acts, the series that we've been in. We're going to look at an Old Testament psalm together, Psalm 135. So it's good to take a little uh, break sometimes, be called to praise the Lord from other parts of Scripture. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the Psalms as we prepare to be fed from God's Word. And I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing up front here, Psalm 135. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings, kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. That's the psalm. Let me pause here before we jump in and pray for us once more. God, as we come to your word and this precious psalm, we know that we need you. We need to be reminded of who you are, of your goodness of your grace, that you are with and for your people. We want to be stirred to to praising you, to bless the Lord. Would you do that in us this morning and open up your word to us in Jesus' name, amen. I want to try to tell a bit of the story of the Psalms this morning. And as I give this little introduction, I'm going to lean pretty heavily on a, a, a really great interview that I heard years back with Hebrew Old Testament scholar Mark Futado on, on the Psalms. And in some cases, I'm just going to relay what he said because it's concise and helpful to kind of set the stage for us. In a lot of ways, the, the story of the Psalms is bound up with the story of King David. After the Exodus and the Hebrews conquest of the promised land after the period of the judges. Saul became the first man to be king over Israel, but Saul disobeyed the Lord and turned from dependence on him, so so God was going to replace him on the throne. David at that time was just a shepherd and a musician 
But God told Samuel that this little shepherd boy was going to be his choice to be the next king over God's people. And during his reign in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's recorded for us a, a pivotal event that happened in relation to the Bible's storyline and in the, in the Psalms in particular. We call it the Davidic covenant, promises that God made to David and his posterity. See, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, a, a temple, the temple, what would become the temple in Jerusalem, so that the Lord could dwell there among his people. But the Lord said that no, David's son would get that privilege. And instead, God promised to build David a house, so to speak. A line of kings that would culminate in, in one whose throne would be established forever. You may know David wrote almost half of the 150 psalms in our Bible. So what about the structure of the psalms and, and how that impacts its meaning? You, you, its meaning? you may not even be aware that there's a larger structure to the psalms. 150 prayers and songs collected, they're, but they're organized into, into five books. There's some speculation that just as there are five books of Moses, so there are five books of the psalms. And that would kind of lend some credibility to the idea that the Psalms mirror the Torah, the instruction of God, a kind of poetic instruction for us. It's Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme, but, but it, it has a lot of parallelism and other structures that these Psalms definitely instruct God's people. They're for our instruction. They're hymns for every season of the soul, collected to be sung as part of the worship of Old Testament Israel. But to rightly interpret them, you, you don't just feel along with the psalmist. That's a part of it. These are very emotional sometimes. But we also have to understand where a psalm lies in the structure of the Psalter. There are smaller structures in the psalms, such as the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, that were sung and prayed on the way up to worship in Jerusalem. But the overall structure is important. These, these five books, they don't always affect your interpretation of the psalm, but they can give some insight that might be helpful, good to be aware of. And so I want to talk about up on the screen, you'll see five books. Book one of the psalms is Psalm 1 through 41. It's about the establishment of God's kingdom. In particular, Psalm 2 and, and how... He's reigning over the world through his king, at that time David, but ultimately the greater son of David to come, Jesus Christ. Then Psalms 42 to 72 make up book number two, how that kingship covenant made with David is transferred to his son Solomon. In book three, Psalms 73 to 89, we see a crisis point. This is this point in history where Israel is exiled from the land. The Babylonians came in and disciplined God's people for their sin and idolatry in 586 BC. Removed them. The Davidic king was cut off and then they began to return 70 years later, still in subjection to a foreign kingdom in the Persian Empire. The Psalms were likely collected and arranged in the, in the final form sometime in these days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and in, in those days, back from captivity, but still marginalized, the question was raised, what happened to the promises that God made? 
We don't see a throne. We don't see a David. So book three kind of ends on that note, and then the Psalms turn thematically to the exile. The vast majority of David's Psalms are in books one through three of the Psalter, And while not all the psalms in books 4 and 5 were written during or after the exile, the Holy Spirit not only inspired these writings, writings, but preserved them and ensured the collection and batching of them together in in the final form in these five books. And so book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, basically says, how you live when your faith says one thing and your experience says something else is important. Your faith says there will always be a Davidic king. His his throne will be established forever. But your experience says there's no Davidic king. The Psalms in this book tell us the Lord reigns again and again. And in some ways in the church we're in the same situation today. We haven't seen Jesus, not with our own eyes. And so our Christian life is ultimately a life of faith. We have to walk by faith in what God says, that in the end all is going to play out as God has said, and that God reigns. In many ways, book four is the heart of the Psalms in that way. And then finally, book five, Psalm 107 to 150, basically says that the faith that you have, that God reigns, has to be lived out, walked out every day. In this section we saw... We see Psalm 119, which is also at the very heart of the Psalter. It's all about obeying God's commands in faith. Our faith has to be a living faith, demonstrated in keeping the commandments of God. And then it ends with Psalm 146 through 150, a grand doxology that says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Our faith demonstrates itself in the worship of God, even if our circumstances seem against the idea of the reign and goodness of God. And so you'll note on the screen, Psalm 135 falls into this book 5 of the Psalter. And again, the, the, the Psalms are not exclusively written by King David, but the collection does tell us in some ways the story of the Davidic covenant and Israel's Roller coaster circumstances as their history unfolded. And, and so they were right, I think, to wonder when they looked at their present circumstances around the exile to Babylon and their, and their return to the land, they didn't have autonomy, they didn't have the blessing of life that they expected. And so it was right for them to think through is God still going to remain faithful to an unfaithful people? What happened to the promises of a Davidic king? We often have similar questions. We don't know who wrote Psalm 135 or even exactly when it was composed, though it's probably fairly late in the Old Testament period. Almost every verse in this psalm has a quotation, an allusion, or an echo of another section of Scripture, so much so that I I won't stop and, and list them all. If you have a study Bible, just look those up later. The psalm uses source material from everything from Exodus to other psalms like Psalm 115, from Numbers to Jeremiah and many more. And so, for instance, if the author of the psalm is quoting from Jeremiah, it must have been finished up toward the end of the exile period. In any case, we do know this psalm was finally placed near the end of the Psalter. So you can imagine, these didn't 
come out of nowhere. They weren't for no thing. They were for the worship of God's people. So you can imagine them back in the land, returning from captivity, feeling unsure due to their circumstances, perhaps distraught, disillusioned, and lots of doubts creeping in their minds about God's plan, His faithfulness, where to look for help and hope, and then picking up Psalm 135 to use in corporate worship at the smaller and less impressive temple that had been rebuilt in Jerusalem. Things just weren't the same. Things were not as good as they used to be. Wondering, would God bring a new king? Would He ever fully deliver His people? And as I said, we're not that different We struggle, we doubt. Do you ever feel left behind or disillusioned by some of the situations you face? Do you ever feel unsure of of God's love? Even wonder, has He abandoned me? Maybe you've gone through a difficult season that brings doubt about the vitality of your faith or, or you're even now being tempted to look elsewhere for security, for joy. I know that we all go through trials in life that tend to work against our faith, that seek to undermine our trust in God, even in very subtle ways. I've been there. Sometimes I'm still there wondering, is God good? Is this really God's plan? Trying circumstances can certainly stir up doubt. But we as God's people are blessed with direction in God's Word on where to focus our spiritual vision so that we can be assured of God's gracious love and faithful care. And so thankfully, Psalm 135 reveals three directions that God's people should look in remembrance when circumstances stir up doubt. And the reason I'm going to be approaching the text by identifying three directions that God's people should look in remembrance in particular is due to the meaning of verse 13 when it says, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. If you have the English Standard Version, you have a little footnote there, or it's translated this way in the New American Standard. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all ages or all generations. The psalmist is seeking seeking to stir us up through remembrance. And so let's jump in with the first direction that God's people should look toward in remembrance. When, When circumstances stir up doubt, look upward, not around. Look upward, not around, and remember the Lord. We see this at the beginning of the psalm, verses 5 through 7, and the end of the psalm, 15 to 18. Look upward. To the one true God. That's really the call of this psalm to begin. Look upward to the one true God. Don't look around at other people. Don't look for other resources, other strategies. Those can easily turn into idols. We have to know who we're looking toward. We need to remember who we are to place our faith in. Who is He? Why is He worthy of our faith and our praise? A couple of reasons are given in the first stanzas of this psalm, verses 1 to 3. Say, for He is good. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. 
The psalmist calls out to the priests, to the temple attendants, and also, I think, to the gathering of the people of God. And he gives them a reason for praise. The Lord is good. Remember, when you see the Lord written in all capitals in your Bible, it is a reference to the Lord's name that he revealed to his covenant people. Yahweh, I am. He tells them, I am who I am. This is the personal name that he reveals to Israel in the context of his covenant actions and faithfulness. God is the one who is. He's eternal. He has no beginning, no end. He's always there. He's he's the good God from whom all the covenant blessings flow. And God's people had experienced so much of God's goodness in their relationship with him. And yet they quickly forgot. Again and again. Just like us. We experience goodness. Something else comes along. We forget. But they had experienced so much good. He'd been so gracious to make them his people in the first place. So merciful with their sins. So forgiving. Full of loving kindness. And so the people of God are called to look upward to God. Because we can expect him to be good to us. When we look at him, we can expect his goodness to do all things for our ultimate good and for his glory in Christ. He's a loving father, and so we're called to look to him. The psalmist not only says that he's good in his character, but beyond that, in verses 5 to 7, he is great. Now, that's not a, a better, like, ah, oh, he's good, but also great. No, he's saying, Verse 5, for I know the Lord is great. Our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. The psalmist's mind turns to praising the majesty, the greatness of God. He knows the one who is exalted above all things and sovereign over the majesty of the created order. This past week, my family and I returned from a trip to visit four amazing national parks in California. So if you, if you haven't been there, you've got to get out there. Four amazing parks. It was glorious. It reminded me of the sovereign creator who spoke it all into being. To see the beautiful views of the massive granite cliffs of Yosemite. The power of the rushing waterfalls crashing down to the earth. You could hear it from far, far away. Those things pale in comparison to the beauty and power of the Lord our God. The giant sequoias that are immovable and seem to stretch to the heavens are but a small hint of the strength and grandeur of our Creator. Just as He was in the days of creation, the Lord is still sovereign over all the heavens and the earth, and He does whatever He pleases from the depths of the sea to the farthest edges of the universe. He is great. He is exalted above all other alleged gods with a small g. He's ruling over all creation. We need to remember, first and foremost, who we're talking about when we say, look to God. 
We need to recognize his immense power and goodness in creating this world for us to inhabit and enjoy and understand that he is fully capable of doing as he pleases. He is good and he is great. Therefore, we should turn away from the false promises of idols. Look at verses 15 to 18. The, the idols of the nations, the pagan nations around them, the idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but don't speak. They have eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. There's no life there. There's no life in the things that we look to besides the Lord. And he ends with this Sober thought and warning, really. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So idols, of course, aren't just the metal and wooden idols of ancient times, though that is what the psalm refers to. An an idol is anyone or anything we look to providing what we should only be looking for from the Lord. Security, love, peace, purpose, deliverance, value. And when our circumstances stir up doubt in our hearts, we are all tempted to look elsewhere for what only the Lord provides. And Christian, hear the psalm, there's no life there. None. They're deaf and dumb and dead. We might look to a person, codependent relationships, money, and the freedom we think it will bring. It can be our work or our family or any number of things. But the bottom line is, Idols make false promises that they can never, ever keep. They are dead gods and bring spiritual death and futility to all who trust in them. The psalmist borrowed this from Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. One scholar says of of Psalm 115 that these verses are typical of the Old Testament view of idols and idolaters. On the one hand, there's no spiritual force or reality behind the idol. It didn't represent an invisible God. It had no more reality than its material craftsmanship. Yet idols were potent to destroy their worshipers. Idols have no ability, no power. They only bring death. And so the psalmist tells us, We must look in faith to the one true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth. We are his people and he alone deserves our worship. In fact, 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Even many Christians are tempted to turn elsewhere at some point to meet our needs and it's, it's a dead end. Most non-Christians can't imagine the one true and living God. A God that can be perfectly good and at the same time all-powerful. And so they, they can't come to believe in Him. After all, they wonder, how could a God who is good and also almighty exist when the world is so broken? Wouldn't a good God want to stop suffering? And wouldn't an almighty God be able to? But if you're a Christian... This is what we hold 
that God is perfectly good and infinitely powerful, and yet we acknowledge there is still suffering in the world. The difference between the believer and the non-believer is an understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ, which is where we'll turn next. We believe that God has actually entered into the suffering of our world, conquered its root, sin and death, and that He is making all things new, including a people for Himself who are being transformed by grace through faith. And so the psalmist points us towards a second direction that God's people should look When circumstances stir up doubt, look backward and remember the cross. Again, remember the situation in the exile after returning to the land. God's people are wondering, was there another Davidic king to come? Is God still with us? And so the psalmist points us back to the prototypical redemptive act in Israel's history, the exodus where God led his people out of Egypt, the conquest of the land that he gave them, and then their inheritance of that promised land. So in verses 8 to 12, he lays out this history as a way of reminder and calls God's people to remember in verse 13. He reminds them, it was God who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, Who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants? He says, remember when when we were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years and God came and overturned the most powerful nation on earth. And there's the reminder of the Exodus and the final plague where, where God killed the firstborn of every home that did not have the blood spread over its doorposts so that God would pass over because of the blood. It's a reminder, God does as he pleases. He reminds them then in the days of Moses from Numbers 21, that God's power over the Canaanite kings who wouldn't allow Israel to pass through their land. He says, he struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. God's powerful to do as he pleases. So he says in verse 13, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all generations. Or your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. This middle section of the psalm here is really the heart of the psalm. And I want to point out the what we call the chiastic structure. Chiastic, like, like an X, like a chi in Greek. The chiastic structure which reveals the psalm's focus. So, If you're not familiar with this, it's just a symmetrical structure of sorts to make clear where the emphasis is. So it's going to pop up on the screen. We see first in this structure the call to praise the Lord for His gracious love towards His people in the first four verses. Then point B, the greatness of the Lord as ruler over creation in verses 5 and 7. Point C, the renown of the Lord in redemption. This is where the focus is because everything is building to and then flowing from it. He talks about it in the Exodus, in the conquest of the promised land, in the inheritance, and in the faithful care for his people. Then the mirror of, of point B is in verses 15 to 18, the inability and futility of idols in contrast to the greatness of the Lord who rules over creation. And then finally, a, another call 
mirroring the first. Praise the Lord who dwells among his people, verses 19 to 21. So you see in there a chiastic structure saying this is the important part to focus on, God's great act of redemption. His act of redemption culminated in his dwelling among his people, as it says in verse 21, as calling his people his treasured possession in verse 4. And so the main remembrance is God's glorious accomplishment and great old covenant act of redemption in the Exodus. And in hindsight, in the new covenant, we look to Christ as the fulfillment of this pattern of redemption. The Exodus was the the ultimate Old Testament redemptive work of God where he chose a people through Abraham, delivered his descendants from slavery. But in the new covenant... God has chosen a people for himself in his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. And now we Gentiles are also welcomed as God's people through the ultimate redemptive work of God at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that all of the Bible points to, that God sent his son, Jesus, to make a people for himself. We were separated from God by our sin. We were without hope. And so God came down to us. His son was born in Bethlehem, lived the life we should have. He went to the cross as we celebrated in communion. He went to the cross and his body was broken and his blood was spilt so that our sin could be forgiven because we deserved death. God in his grace has worked all history towards that point for our blessing, for our good. And if you're here this morning, you have not trusted in Jesus, you're still separated from God, and a judgment awaits. And this psalm would remind us to look to a God who is good, who is great, who is redemptive, and wants you to be part of His holy people. So I would encourage you to trust that today. And along with the rest of us, celebrate this good news of Jesus, this great work of redemption. One of the most precious verses to help us look at the cross in remembrance and have it stir up faith to praise God, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his son, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think by pointing to the Old Testament story of redemption, the psalmist is essentially making an analogous argument to what Romans 8.32 says. He says, look back to redemption so that you can be stirred up to faith for future grace. Right? If God did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He's going to give us what we need now and into the future. That is a verse that in my mind guarantees the other promises. The redemptive act of the cross is what reminds us that God is for us when we can't see it. That he will continue to do good to us by his grace. The cross gives us assurance of God's faithfulness to the other promises such as Romans 8.28 a few verses earlier. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
when our circumstances stir up doubt and we have trouble believing, God, you're using this to work together for good? We just say, you did not spare your own son. You gave him up for us all. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? The cross is how we in the church are made a people for God's own possession akin to Psalm 135.4. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9-10 reveals that the New Testament church shares in many of the blessings and privileges given to Israel in the Old Testament as God's promises are given new dimensions and fulfillments in Christ. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, meaning because of the cross and resurrection, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, these blessings are all bought with the blood of the cross. So when our circumstances tempt us to doubt God's goodness and reign and put our trust in other things, we must live by faith rather than by sight. We must remember the Lord's work at the cross and all that it's accomplished for us. The great redemptive act of the Old Testament is what captured the psalmist's heart and the greater redemptive act of Christ's cross and resurrection in the New Testament ought to capture ours. He didn't spare His Son. He will give us all that we need. Praise Him. Be glad He has made us His people. And so we should start by looking upward and remember the Lord, and we should look backward and remember the cross. But finally, there's a third direction that God's people should look. When circumstances stir up doubt, look forward and remember He will always dwell with us. Listen to verse 14. It's not just about a past remembrance, but a present and future help with ongoing promise of His presence. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. Then picking up in 19 to 21, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Right? Among his people, in the temple, a preparatory dwelling so that in the new covenant he could dwell with us. This psalm affirms that the Lord still has compassion and cares for His people. It promises final vindication, final deliverance, which I think assumes in the psalm that there's difficulty in the circumstances they're facing in the present or will come. The psalm locates His care for us as His people in the present and into the future. He dwells with us in Jerusalem, the psalm says. He dwells with us in the temple, right among His people. So the psalm rejoices in that. But that dwelling is ultimately fulfilled first in Christ. Right? Remember what Jesus was called, Emmanuel, God with us? John 1.14 said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And God's dwelling among his people is also fulfilled in the church, a people for his own possession. Ephesians 2, 18 to 22 says, For through him we, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, speaking of the Gentiles coming in, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then catch this, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So church, this means when you're struggling, when you're doubting, when you're not sure where the Lord is in your situation, you are not alone. You're never alone. He is in you by His Spirit, and we are with you as the church. The church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a glorious thought. I want to emphasize that His presence now in us brings the transforming grace that we need. Sometimes to transform our situation, but mostly to transform us into the image of Christ. Believers are not who we were when we first came to Christ. And we're not yet who we will be. But His presence is with us through the indwelling Spirit. Every Christian has the presence of God and He dwells among us corporately to bring us power and resources for us to become more like Jesus, whether our circumstance is good, bad, or ugly. And He does transform us bit by bit in fits and starts. We are being changed. And the Spirit whose presence is in us, is what Ephesians 1.14 calls the guarantee or down payment of our greater inheritance that one day will be fully transformed by grace at Christ's return when He takes us to be with Him forever. We have this down payment even now. Because God's dwelling among His people will finally and ultimately be fulfilled in the new heaven and a new earth. And at the close, near the close of the Bible in Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This reminds us we are his people, created for him, and we need to remember that. He will dwell in us for eternity. He dwells within us as the church by faith and not by sight during this age. But he has promised to never leave us, never forsake us, to be with us until the end. And one day he will dwell with us as our God face to face with no barriers in eternity. And then church will live by sight and not by faith. And so really the, the takeaway from this passage, the, the, the main point to end on here, 
Let me just encourage you. Let the redemption that God accomplished in the past stir up our faith to praise Him for present and future grace. Church, remember who the Lord is. Remember the cross. Remember He dwells with us now and will dwell with us always. Lean on the redemption that He's accomplished in the past Know that he's applied it to you by grace through faith by the Holy Spirit in the presence. And know that whatever your circumstances, you can praise him. You can trust him. He is able to do as he pleases and he will accomplish his good purposes. And so Psalm 135 calls us to remember to praise. We're commanded to in this psalm. Just look at all those imperatives to start and end the psalm. Praise, sing, bless. But church, more than just being commanded, we're invited to remember some of the many reasons we should praise the Lord, sing to His name, and bless Him now and forever. So let the redemption God accomplished in the past stir up our faith to praise Him for present and future grace. Let me pray for us all. Lord, you are good again and again to give us, by way of reminder, places to hang our hope, to be invited to remember who you are, your character, what kind of God we we serve and worship, to remember our insignificance in light of your greatness. And yet you, through Christ, have made us your people. You gave up your Son so that we could be reconciled to you, to the praise of your glorious grace. Thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our future inheritance, knowing that we will one day dwell face to face with you, and you dwell among us as you our God, and we, your people. Lord, for those who are in difficult circumstances presently, would you lift their eyes back to the cross and up to you? And would you help them to walk forward, trusting that you are good, that you are able to accomplish your purposes, that you are working all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, for those of us who are in good circumstances, let us keep our eyes trained on Christ so that as trials come, we're not tempted to to doubt and look to the idols of our culture and our world for what we need, but instead know that you are good, that you are there, and lean on you. Thank you for your reminder this morning. And as we praise you now, Lord, would we lift up not only our voices, but our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.